Hi, I'm Pat Bastu, President and CEO of Cancer Treatment Centers of America and the host of Focused on Cancer. We have an incredibly exciting episode today, and I am pleased to welcome John Bardis to the show. I don't have enough uh, adjectives to describe John. He is a, a leader, an innovator, uh, an entrepreneur, a just a, a force for good in healthcare. John served as the Assistant Secretary for Health at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. He has founded uh, nonprofits such as Hire Heroes USA, the nation's leading organization committed to training and employing U.S. veterans. Uh, he has led some of the most um, impactful companies in, in American healthcare. And on a fun fact, he is a champion wrestler who this year is going to be leading Team USA in the Greco-Roman wrestling arena at the Tokyo Olympics. The, long-awaited Tokyo Olympics uh, coming up uh, here in uh, in the summer of 2021. So, John, I know you're an incredibly busy guy. Uh, super excited about today's show, but welcome. Uh, thanks for joining us. Well, my pleasure, Pat. Great, great to be here. Thanks for coming. Well, before we get into uh, the fun, uh, you know, I can't help but asking about uh, just briefly, you know, the Olympics. I, I've been a fan for, for a long time. I know... Uh, it's one of those things that unites us from around the world and uh, every, well, sort of every four years, depending on, on summer and winter. But uh, this year we had to wait a year because of the pandemic. But how's it going? Everyone uh, everyone excited to, to get back into the groove there? Yeah, for sure. We actually have the uh, Olympic record Roman wrestling team arriving today in this building to train for the next 11 days. Um, so, you know, the athletes and coaches are are very focused on preparation. We're getting down to the short stroke, so to speak, in terms of um, the details around each individual athlete, each individual Olympians training plan. Um, and uh, we head out We head out to Tokyo in, in mid-July, so it's coming up pretty quick. This camp will run uh, through the 5th of July, and the, the athletes go home for a week and, and then head, head back uh, to the airport to go to uh, Tokyo and do an acclimation camp for a week and a half before we compete. Well, good luck. I know uh, we will be watching you and the rest of Team USA go for gold. And uh, as we get into today's show, we're going to talk a ton about healthcare innovation, healthcare technology. John, you've done so much in the advancement of, of healthcare technology during your career. I always like to ask our guests a little bit about what what led you down the career path. Uh, you know, the health technology piece, what what got you interested in that in the first place and how did you how did you get here? My my father was a veteran of World War II and so he was educated by the GI Bill and uh, um, came from a family of immigrants. His father immigrated from Lithuania and uh, actually earned our family citizenship fighting in World War One as a foreign national. He was in Persians American Expeditionary Force. Uh, was badly wounded um, in battle. Uh, he stayed a year in an army hospital uh, in one of the battles of Simon Hill in Simon Hill, France, uh, St. Michael, uh, and um, contracted the Spanish flu <laughs> during uh, his year in an army hospital, survived it, became an American citizen. And my, my own father 
I was in the ROTC in high school at Harrison High School, which no longer exists in Chicago. Um, and then right out of high school, went into World War II. And uh, one of the great benefits that American GIs received was the GI Bill, who was able to take advantage of that, got a college education, became a captain, stayed in the Army for Korea, and then a dentist. And so he met my mother, who was, uh, as it turns out, the last born of 11 Russian immigrant kids. And she went to County School of Nursing and became a nurse. And so I grew up around uh, healthcare and the sciences. And my parents had a big influence on, you know, what the conversations around the dinner table were and so forth. So um, I, I was very interested in healthcare because of those conversations. And when I came out of uh, school, I went to work with uh, American Hospital Supply Corporation, which later merged with Baxter. So I worked right out of school uh, for Baxter. And so that was, that was kind of my starting point. But I, I came by that interest path uh, through parents who talked science and healthcare at the dinner table. Wow, John. Well, thanks for sharing that story. And, uh, you know, to, to both your grandfather's uh, service in World War One and uh, your father's in World War II in Korea. What an incredible um, path. And, uh, and certainly, as, as you and I have discussed before, the, the embodiment of, of the American dream and uh, so much of, uh, you know, what has made uh, you know, the United States uh, the country it is today. And as we look back, as, as I listen to your story of the journey of your, your grandfather and your father, I think about this often, I would say, is it's incredible to think how much life in every way, and certainly in healthcare, has changed over the past 100 years. You know, you mentioned the Spanish flu uh, nearly a, cent a little over a century ago. And, uh, and obviously, you know, we've just been dealing with a, a global pandemic here in the year 2020. But keeping that aside for a moment, it really is remarkable to think about the advances in, in human civilization in the past 100 years and in healthcare in particular. Uh, you know, in that time, we have, I would say, you know, found ways to truly combat most infectious diseases. We have been able to essentially replace most organs in, in the human body during that time. Uh, incredible breakthroughs, some of which we'll talk about today. But, uh, you know, as you look back over 100 years, given your passion of both history and your track record of innovation, it's pretty remarkable, isn't it? The difference that we've seen uh, between now and then. It really hasn't been until this past 100 years that the human race has made real progress on mass against pandemic and infectious disease and made meaningful improvements in life expectancy. You know, life expectancy of a, of a male, a white male in 1900 uh, was in his 40s, right? Um, and an African-American male in 1900, average life expectancy was 31. So that data comes from the ICD time code, which has tracked a human life expectancy now for, for that 120 years. And so it's, um, it is fascinating, the battle that has been waged, which has had enormously positive impact on human productivity, the growth of America for sure, and Western civilization. We still have a lot of work to do in other parts of the world where infectious disease still is a major factor in life expectancy. But yes, wow, this hundred years in so many ways has been an extraordinary journey for the human race because of public health 
and the advancements that have been made in therapeutics. Yeah, no question about it. It's uh, it's remarkable, and for for people like you and I who talk so often about the imperative to improve uh, healthcare and, and American healthcare, uh, it is important. And I, I I often take stock of how far we have come, as you said before, particularly in the past century. Um, you, you know, as we as we often think about cancer care, John, it's uh, it's pretty remarkable too. Just as you know, in the last about 30 years, approximately from, you know, 1990 to about 2020, the, the death rate from cancer fell by, by about 30%. And, uh, and, and that is due to some remarkable innovations in, in early diagnosis and precision medicine and, and on, in, in surgery, surgery, radiation oncology, radiology. And uh, speaking of mRNA, there's actually uh, great hope that the, the impact of mRNA on, on cancer therapy is, uh, is gonna be big in the, in the coming decade, even though we haven't really begun to test that yet. But as you think, John, you, you've had such a breadth of experience from government to nonprofit to uh, leading in the private sector and, and the, the heavy health technology work that you do now. What are some of the, the big technological innovations that you, um, that you see, you know, on the cost going forward. What are some of the big categories that, that excite you? Well, you know, one of the great privileges that I had in working in the government path um, was working directly with um, Francis Collins, who's head of the NIH, and Tony Fauci, who many people now know because of his role as a head, head of infectious disease and allergy uh, at the National Institute of Health. So Dr. Fauci reports to Francis Collins and both are, from my experience in working with them, are really remarkable human beings. Remarkably talented, remarkably gifted, and remarkably compassionate. They love people. They spend have spent their entire careers finding ways to better the lives of others. Um, Francis Collins wrote a really remarkable book, but based on a lot of the research and uh, effort that he led. Uh, to sequence the human genome. And as, as you remember, uh, Francis was in the White House with Bill Clinton in, in late 1990s, and when he announced uh, that the human genome had been fully sequenced. And I believe that um, President Clinton uh, used uh, the term that we now understand the language of God when he brought this forward in the, in the White House. Dr. Collins has continued his work uh, in, in leading the effort on understanding the impact of the human genome. In fact, wrote just a remarkable book uh, that I have read you know, over and over again and, and still have much to, to learn by absorbing more of it. It's, it's uh, very intriguing, called The Language of God. And uh, Francis sort of mixes his views on faith along with his views on science and comes to conclude in the book that those who are non-believers in a higher power and those who are believers in a higher power may have more in common than they think they do, meaning specifically that uh, those who believe in evolution and those who believe in creation um, have a lot more in common based on what he has come to learn about how the human genome operates. In 1918, there were approximately 1.5 billion people on the earth. Today, there are over 7 billion. Uh, in many ways, that's a testimony to the effort and effect that we've had with public health. We certainly haven't fixed every problem, uh, but you know, going forward, um, we 
we really uh, are in a very unique position that, with, as you point out, the mRNA technology, that we can attack some of these uh, these terrible maladies that have affected mankind. I think maybe the, you know one of the more compelling uh, conversations is in oncology. We are on the cusp of, I think, the most exciting time in the history of human uh, health and, and what it means for public health in the future, specifically autoimmune and cancer because of this. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. I, I mean, there is almost a, a Cambrian explosion of, uh, of innovations and, and breakthroughs that we see uh, across the, the, the science and technology spectrum, I, I think in particular, a, a really good focus in, in medical breakthroughs. You know, uh, John, the University of Illinois uh, re recently opened a medical school that really ties medicine directly to the disciplines of engineering, right? And I think the excitement of bringing different disciplines together to solve uh, very, very challenging medical problems is something that, that you and I share, but the impact of uh, of electrical engineering in medicine and 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 what that can do for um, you know central nervous system or uh, you know just uh, prosthetic limbs, uh, mechanical engineering and its impact in in bioprosthetics and just really the hemodynamics of of our circulatory system. Every every tie-in from technology and engineering, I think, has a a breakthrough that can be tied to you know to healthcare, and, and as I listen to you talk, it's it, it really jogged for me the notion that how many things in medicine we can tie back again either directly or indirectly to big bold bets that the United States has, has made, whether those were uh, in in NASA and space, where you know that that's led to you know great medical technologies and and as I often say that the earliest of tele telemedicine, uh, sadly uh, in in some of our conflicts armed conflicts where we've had great advances in in trauma surgery and and uh, you know you know surgical principles in general. As we think about barriers to innovation, you know some of the things that that worry me would be a. Um, number one, a, 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 a sort of an attack on on data and, and and sort of the misinformation that we see, uh, but but also perhaps a, a, a is you know a, a dearth of investment from the United States in terms of some of these these big areas. Do you think? Do you agree with those? And and what what other barriers do you see that that might harness? Uh, or restrict the level of innovation that we've seen in the last 50 to 70 years? Well, you're at, you know, it's, it's a very interesting uh, set of subjects that you sort of touch on there, Pat. I, you know, as a starting point, what I would say is my observation from working inside the CDC and, you know, running the cyber operations as well as all the IT operations at HHS is that America, to me, is an indispensable force for good in the world. Um, we talked a little bit about mRNA technology, but, you know, the use of, of those kinds of remarkable breakthroughs in intellectual insight and science have had a very positive effect on the world. And so I'll give you an example of that. Back when the Ebola crisis hit in uh, Africa, um, we, we, as you know, in America, already had a good bit of experience with boots on the ground from a commission and public health perspective in Africa with HIV. 
under the Bush administration, we started a program called PEPFAR. And PEPFAR was a collaboration between USAID, the State Department, uh, HHS, the NIH, and the CDC. And that was a direct response by the, the wealthiest and most powerful nation in the world to wipe out HIV and the spread of it in Africa. And the PEPFAR program uh, under the Bush administration and led by Dr. Deborah Burks, who later became ambassador to South Africa before she returned to coordinate the COVID-19 pandemic uh, response, um, ultimately provided antivirals to over 15 million sub-Saharan Africans uh, and still does every day. It's something that America doesn't get credit for. It doesn't get discussed uh, very often in the public press, but that's a public health response that America has been involved in for a long period of time. And we've had real success in stemming the advance uh, and growth of, of HIV in Sub-Saharan Africa. Sub Africa. Uh, we had a similar set of um, actions when Ebola hit, uh, I believe it was Sierra Leone. It's America who put the Commission Corps on the ground in hazmat suits and buried the dead and built the hospitals and began to care for those who were sick. But also, again, what's not often discussed is we use handheld technology um, and the breadth of technology that we have in the federal government, but specifically HHS, is pretty remarkable, right? We cut Medicare checks with COBOL, uh, which prints our checks, and that's a that's a nearly a 70-year-old program uh, for um, uh, managing large chunks of information and something that very few uh, organizations use today because it's very well outdated. And at the same time, we have handheld technology that could unravel the DNA and sequence it and send that information back uh, to the United States, from which we, through DARPA, developed an, e an Ebola vaccine. Uh, within, I believe, that Ebola vaccine was built in 24 days, which is an amazing thing, right? Um, we did the same thing with Zika. So I think that the United States, from an economic and from a science and from a public service perspective, has continued to be a remarkable force for good when it comes to the health of the world. And those are two pretty meaningful examples of that. Absolutely. Those are terrific, terrific examples. And, you know, as you as you've mentioned, uh, you know, some of those really, really powerful examples, you know, it, it jogs for me this notion that as much as we talk about technological advances in terms of Moore's law and, uh, you know, the, the doubling of, of computer processing speed, it's it's pretty remarkable. I mean, sometimes I, I think people overlook the advances. You, know, you referenced uh, 1998 uh, with sequencing the human genome. the The rate of of the cost and the ability to sequence the human genome has dropped, has increased rather faster than than even Mars Law has has progressed. And so, you know, I think there there's been a lot of opportunities. If you look at uh, everything from telehealth to value based care to other things that have, we're, we're not done yet, but have increased access, decreased wait times, and, uh, and and begun to increase safety. That's something in the past decade that's given me a lot of a lot of hope. Other examples or areas that you've seen in terms of process innovation in healthcare? We, we have built a system that was designed to respond to the changes that we saw in human life expectancy, right? So going back a little bit, Medicare, was really a direct response to a successful effort uh, to improve the lives and life expectancy of the average American. So we talked a little bit about that 
life expectancy issue all the way back to the 1900 time frame. By the time Medicare itself came around, the life expectancy due to things like penicillin and innovations in antibiotics uh, and public health and vaccinations, you, you talked a minute, I think, about vaccinations and the need, I remember as a kid, getting smallpox vaccines and mumps and measles vaccines and boosters because of the uh, viral morphing of, of all of those uh, pathogens. Um, and we were now eliminating childhood diseases that were killing kids. The mortality rate for children in New York City at the turn of the last century was about 20%. So if you had 10 children, there, there was a fair chance that two of your children didn't make it through childhood because of infectious disease. So we've made these just remarkable improvements in life. And then Medicare um, came along in 65 as a response to an aging population. And uh, we, we have built a system of care in the United States, while not perfect, is designed to uh, provide services to both the poor through Medicaid, the elderly through Medicare, and the working folks uh, through private insurance. And in addition to that, we have a program called CHIP, uh, which is our, our children's healthcare program in the United States, where every child, regardless of where they are from economically um, or economic capabilities of their family, have access to the, the finest network of children's hospitals in the United States. Um, and so, uh, you know, reducing uh, childhood mortality rates has also been a key factor, you know, in, in productivity. But all of this also has been wrapped in process improvement. And then, back to your point, you know, with much more to do, right? The electronic medical record, while an important piece of information for Americans to have, to carry throughout their healthcare uh, life and, and, um, and process is essentially a medical passport of information that can be used to effectively help each individual manage their care as well as their caregivers. But if you look at the process today, right, we've taken the best and the brightest of our, uh, of our students in the form of our medical doctors nationwide and if you watch a doctor do rounds on floors in U.S. hospitals today, of that hour per round, about 15 to 20 minutes is used directly in front of the patient. The rest of the time, that 40 to 45 minutes of the additional time in an hour is used for documentation, which I think is a problem. Um, I think we've taken the best and the brightest of our students in the form of our medical doctors and our nurses and our lab technicians, and, and we have overburdened the process of documentation uh, to the point where I think we, we've eliminated some of that um, of that face-to-face -face, uh, diagnostic interface time and patient relation time that would benefit the patient more. So I, I think while we've made real improvements, uh, and, and a great example of that is the Da Vinci robot, right? Robotic surgery, which is so precise that you can microsurgically cut around um, very, very small nerve structures and not damage the patient in a way that a, a more manual human interaction might. Th those are just um, examples of, of the innovation that have come along, along with, of course, we talked about human genome and other therapeutics. So I, I'm very bullish on the future when it comes to the science therapeutic and process improvement club. Um, Pat, not to, not to overburden the, the, the question, but, you know, we in America have some other challenges around our healthcare system, and that is it's 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 too expensive, right? We have a cost challenge, and 
it's something that this generation and the next generation are going to have to um, manage. Absolutely. You, you know, your, your point on uh, physician process, I think you, you, you know, you, you have agreement from me and probably about 800,000 other doctors where there are just some unbelievable statistics around that, you know, doctors only having eight minutes to spend in, in front of a patient. And, and as you said before, the, the amount of time actually delivered, uh, you know, and, and care delivery, you're doing what a doctor was trained to do versus the administrative and documentation burdens that have really plagued the system are, are epic. Cost is, is clearly a, a, a mega, mega emergency issue in, in American healthcare. And another one that obviously has, has popped up is, is the issue of, of disparities, uh, gender disparities, uh, ethnic disparities, but, but really just a wide standard deviation, if you will, across healthcare. And so often in the past, healthcare was spoke of in sort of monolithic terms. And, you know, we talk about life expectancy in terms of a number, but there's, there's wide variation by, by a variety of factors. One of the things that gives me optimism, though, is something that you work on very directly is, is data and analytics. And, and it's been around technologically for you know, 20, 20 plus years, but our ability, John, now to really segment, to identify and stratify populations that are at risk and even individuals that are at risk so we can target better processes and better therapies to them. And I know you do a lot of work in that area, but I, I think that's going to be an area of great advancement in the decade ahead where we can use data and analytics to precisely pinpoint not just genes and not just medicines, but people in need of a specific type of therapy versus somebody else. Would you, would you agree? Oh, yeah. Well, I, I think we kind of have to, right? I mean, as we know, progress in everything doesn't happen in a straight line. And we clearly, in this country, while... The best, in my view, the best idea the world has ever seen around government and, and human life improvement, uh, the American democracy is the best example. It is highly imperfect. It still has major shortcomings to overcome. And, and those tend to play themselves out more dramatically in the social and economic disparity category, right? So when you look at our poor populations, those who are on the lower socioeconomic rung financially, Oftentimes, it is those populations through education and lack of resource who, who continue to struggle with their health methods. You know, uh, while we've made efforts to make improvements there, we come to realize that the health system as we know it today has some, some holes in it as it relates uh, to those access points. And, it, and I think perhaps the most compelling example of that has been how the system is uh, constructed financially. It is a cost-plus system that remains largely a cost-plus system. We hear the terms used quite frequently, value-based care versus cost and, and uh, fee-for-service-based care. But when, when you have poor people who are struggling financially, trying to get care in a model that in sense care that is on a fee-for-service basis, it's those programs like Medicare specifically, even Medicaid specifically, who pay less, which have a direct restriction on the poor and those and socioeconomically uh, stressed classes. Um, it, it prevents them from getting the care that they would need because the incentive of the system is to create a cost that you could then charge up for. 
And so poorer populations don't afford that to a system which is incentive in that manner. And so as a result of that, you know, a lot of that burden for the population of the poor and the underserved in our country falls on Medicaid. And you know this well, Pat, most practices in this country, most health systems in this country don't seek to serve the Medicaid populations, which is in a large reason why we've got the large public hospitals, for example, Cook County in Chicago or here in Atlanta, Brady or down in Miami, Jackson or in Los Angeles, LA County. While those were attempts and our attempts to, to rectify this, this disparity, it doesn't get the job done for it. And so I, I do think the fee-for-service model further separates the poor and the underserved from access. And I think it's something that we're going to ultimately have to come to grips with and deal with. Absolutely. Well, I'm going to have to have you back on, uh, on, a, on a show to discuss just some of the policy uh, solutions and policy implications, which I think are, are many to continue the, the race towards building a, a better healthcare system as part of a, a more perfect union. John, as, as we begin to kind of wrap up here, I wanted to, I wanted to kind of end where I began, which is we, we traced back over the last hundred years, you, you shared the personal journey of your grandfather and your, and your father. And I, I sort of referenced this, this look back and how I often think about future children and grandchildren and, and what will what will healthcare look like going the opposite direction, 50 years, 100 years in the future. Paint, if you will, what might be some visions of what, what we might expect. You're, you're truly one of the, the best innovators uh, and entrepreneurs that I know in healthcare. Paint a vision of 50 years from now, maybe 100 years from now. What, what do you see as, as the great advances in healthcare? What will it look like? Yeah, great question. Well, first of all, I really don't know, but I'll, I'll give it a shot. But, you know, um, I, I think we have a great possibility of eliminating, uh, I don't think I'll see it. I think you'll have a chance to see it, Pat. I think your kids will see it. Um, I think we'll eliminate most cancers. I think we're going to eliminate the autoimmunes. Um, I think the entire health delivery system will change as a result of it. There is a real case to be made for not just these advancements, but the the equal sharing of these advancements throughout the world, right? It is a good and positive thing that America and those of like-minded philosophies throughout the world in uh, Western Europe, et cetera, that these great technologies are spread, right? If you look at it, right, the last generation, these things don't move at the same time or at a pace that maybe we would want. But when we think about the you know, the polio vaccine, we look at the elimination of all these infectious diseases that have happened over the last hundred years. They have moved the needle northbound in terms of life improvement for the rest of the world. And I think um, going forward that the effect of this, right, allows people to be more productive, live better lives, uh, and, and hopefully with solutions that uh, fit uh, the cultures, and expectations of the people, hopefully free people, in the countries who are benefiting from these advancements. So America is, I believe, really at the tip of the spear of this type of innovation. I mean, you know, the concept of innovation, uh, in my view, uh, has the idea behind it of life improvement, not just for Americans, in our case, but the rest of the world. And that creates a more stable and safer 
a better future for all of our children. So I, I for one, am extremely bullish on the future because of these innovations and what it can do for the rest of the world. And I think it's incredibly important that America retain and maintain its leading position in terms of the advancement of these sciences because our track record is very straightforward. We underwrite it, we finance it, and then we often make it available to the rest of the world at costs which are fractional to this nation compared to what this nation pays for. And that in and of itself has been a challenge for the country, right? As we look at it today, America is approximately 4.5% of the Earth's population. Uh, we will spend well over $4 trillion this year and, and five years from today, more than $6 trillion on health care. If American health care was a country today, uh, it would be the fourth largest economy in the world. American health care expenditures are larger than the entire GDP of Germany, four times larger than the entire GDP of Russia. Uh, and so we spend more money per capita than any other nation on earth by far on healthcare, and I think that's something that we ultimately have to solve for. Uh, but in the meantime, um, leveraging off the innovation that is underwritten literally by federal grants all the way through our major teaching institutions to improve human life and then become commodities available to the general population, I think it's a system that has proven to be exceptionally effective in improving human life and productivity. So I. I, for one, am extremely optimistic about what's to come, um, and I also think that we have to go uh, a watchful eye, vigilantly on our cost infrastructure. Well, John, I really share your optimism. You, you know, a, a few threads that that you hit on very, very eloquently: the the notion of America as an indispensable force for good, the combination, the milieu of. A, a free society that encourages not only entrepreneurs and innovators such as yourself, but undergirds them with with a nation that has consistently taken big, bold bets uh, to, to to really provide that foundation. Whether it be you know NIH, DARPA, uh, you know a, a myriad of other uh, foundations that that have really led to that infrastructure. And absolutely, what a, what a note to end on. I, I do share your, your opinion, and I am uh, absolutely confident that in our lifetime, we will see uh, the remarkable change in uh, the trajectory of diseases, uh, including infectious diseases, all the way to absolutely stopping uh, the plague that we call cancer. And um, it's because of incredible leaders and innovators like you that, uh, that we're gonna get there. So John, I know how busy you are, but uh, really, really enjoyed having you on the show. Uh, I know the audience did as well. Thank you for taking the time. And uh, once again, we'll talk soon. And uh, uh, good luck. Uh, good luck leading, leading Team USA in Tokyo.